0: It should be the goal of every Christian to live consistently in fellowship with God. The Greek term koinonia, translated fellowship in most places in the New Testament, refers to more than just a positional or a legal or contractual relationship. One can be positionally related to another, but not in fellowship with that person. Married couples, I'm afraid... Too often find themselves in this situation. They're legally married. There is a positional relationship, but somewhere along the way, they lost the intimacy of soul that they once shared. They're still legally related, but not necessarily experiencing fellowship with one another. The same can be said of the Christian and his or her relationship to God. Once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, we are in a positional relationship with the Lord. And that relationship is not going to change. It cannot be lost. Theologically, that principle is known as eternal security. Once you're a child of God in the sense of salvation, you're always a child of God in the sense of salvation. God is never going to divorce you but at the same time holiness cannot fellowship with unholiness holiness cannot have an intimate relationship with unholiness when we sin as christians we remain positionally righteous but we become experientially unrighteous and the key word there is experientially the one condition that the Bible ever presents for receiving the forgiveness of sins and the granting of eternal life is faith, faith alone and Christ alone. And if you've come this morning and you've never done that, if you know that there's something missing in your life, there's some void there, there's a vacuum there that you know needs to be filled up with something, I would propose to you that the best thing to fill it up with is not drugs or sex or alcohol or or a hobby, or, or, some, or pouring yourself into your work, whatever the things that are that people do to fill up that vacuum, I'm going to tell you that that vacuum is a God-sized vacuum. And only God is going to be able to fill that vacuum up. And the way it's filled up is by grace through faith. For by grace we've been saved. Through faith it's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, should never perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's that's a verse that we learn as kids, but it's a strong verse. It's a powerful verse. And we focus on the love of God there, don't we? That's God's motivation for sending His, his only begotten Son. But don't miss the last part of that sentence. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him, that's the condition, shall not perish. Whosoever believeth in Him or place their faith in Him won't perish and you know what the implication is it's more than an implication if you don't you will perish there's a popular teaching out there today that there really is no such thing as hell or if there is a hell it only lasts for a short period of time (laughs) you know it is popular out there it's amazing to me that it's becoming so popular it's popular in the college circles big time now the people that are ministering to some of the college kids big time popular I have to tell you, there's a part of me that wishes it was true, but it's not. The revelation of the Word of God tells us that there is a choice that everybody's got to make for Christ or against Christ, for God or against God. And that choice is made simply by humbling ourselves and coming to God with the empty hands of faith. That puts us in that positional relationship with God that cannot be lost. And I assume most everybody, if not everybody here has done that, So I want to tell you about a second relationship we have and how that can be restored. Because you can't lose the positional relationship, but you can lose the intimacy that you have. Again, just like you can with your wife or with a friend, with with a child or with a parent. Anybody that's close to you, you have a positional relationship, let's say, with your wife. You get married, you say, I do. She says, I do. You put the rings on, the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife by the power that's vested in me by the state of Texas, et cetera, et cetera. I pronounce you husband and wife. You sign the form, you send it into the county, the county registers it and you're legally married. Then you go off on a honeymoon. And if the honeymoon lasts more than a couple days, there's probably gonna be some experiential challenges on the honeymoon because people are people, human beings are human beings. But somewhere along the way, one of the partners, either husband or wife, usually the husband, because that's who usually does the wrong thing, at least in my experience, talking with the ladies. <laughs> it's almost exclusively the husband, so let's use the husband as the illustration. The husband does something he ought not to do, even on the honeymoon. I can't believe he would do that, but let's say on the honeymoon he does something he ought not to do, and the positional relationship is still there. They're, they're still married, whether they like it or not at that moment. But experientially, they're in anything but fellowship. You see, that's the illustration. So in a, in a human realm, you may say, I do, in order to get married and to be in that positional relationship. And then what do you typically do to get back into an, experientially, into an experiential fellowship? You usually say, I'm sorry. That's the two conditions for the, in the human realm. But when we talk about God, there the, the conditions are slightly different. Actually, significantly different. In order to get into the position positional relationship, in the first place, you say, Father, I trust Jesus Christ. I know I can't save myself. And I'm placing my faith and only my faith in Him. I'm not bringing any works to the table. I'm not going to try to be good. I'm not going to join a church in order to gain eternal life. I'm not going to give money. All those things are fine afterwards. But in order to gain that positional relationship, I'm going to place my faith in Christ. But after we do that, we're still fallen human beings, and we sin, we fail. And when we fail, we become experientially unholy. And when we're experientially unholy, then we cannot have fellowship, that close intimacy. We have a positional relationship, but the close intimacy is lost, and the Bible only gives one condition for the restoration of that relationship, and that's confession. So this is a heavy theological concept, but it's really pretty simple if we break it down that way. One condition for the receiving of the positional relationship, faith. One condition for for the receiving of the restoration to the closeness that we want to have with God, and that's confession. When we make an honest, open admission to God that what we did was wrong, when we call sin, sin, just like God calls it sin, God is faithful and justified forgiving us every sin every time one time I taught this outside of our own local church and it was in a it was in a forum where people could ask questions and one pastor raised his hand this was in a foreign context actually raised his hand and said hold on hold on you're saying that if I'm a Christian and I murder somebody I can confess it and I'm going to be restored to God's fellowship uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. He said, you're out of your mind. I said, no, I'm reading the Word of God. That's what God says. And I, said, and I told him, that doesn't mean you're going to get away with it. You know, there may be a, a civil penalty, a criminal penalty you have to pay. You may get executed. There was a girl in, in Texas, I think it was 95, 96, somewhere in that range, that committed a terrible crime. She became a believer later on. A lot of people wanted her pardoned. The governor of Texas at that time, uh, who later President Bush, with tears in his eyes, refused to pardon her because she had committed the crime. There was still a penalty she had to pay, but she was, when she was, received those chemicals, she went to heaven to be with the Lord. I remember watching it on television. They didn't show the execution, but they watched the moment-by-moment moment drama unfold because nobody knew if, if the Governor Bush at that time was going to commute her sentence or pardon her. I remember my wife and I, we had tears running down our cheeks. You know, it was, It's a sad thing to see people have to undergo the discipline that they must undergo sometimes for some of the things that they do. It's a sad thing. But at the same time, I knew he was right, in my view, because that's the punishment under the laws of the state of Texas. Well, with God, yes, you can murder someone and be restored to fellowship, but it doesn't mean you're not going to pay the price. Look at David. Ten years he pays the price. Ten years with a misery in his life by, for what he did. But he was restored to fellowship as soon as he goes to God and confesses that sin, as per Second Samuel 11 and 12, Psalm 51, Psalm 32. So he was restored. It's God's call how much we suffer. Sometimes, if we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. If we get the point, if we realize that what we did was wrong, we'll never do it again. I think there are some sins that God says, okay. You got the point. There's no need for me to discipline you. Other times there is. And when God disciplines us, it's to get our attention. So we have faith to get into the positional relationship, confession to be restored to the fellowship, the intimacy. But there is another factor at work. And this factor is critical for understanding and applying our passage today, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And that is the factor. That is called repentance. Where does repentance come in? Confession restores the believer to fellowship with God. Repentance keeps us there. Our passage today picks up the thought from the first part of chapter 5 and expands upon it. Our passage today is actually going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 9 through 13. But it's been a couple of weeks, so let me remind you of the context of verses 1 through 8. A man in Corinth, in the church in Corinth, was sleeping with his stepmother. The behavior was an affront to the morality of Gentile pagans, who were, in the thinking of many, the epitome of moral depravity themselves. The whole thing was nothing short of shocking. And to make things even worse, it was being tolerated in the church. Nothing was being done about it. The behavior which should have grieved the church did no such thing. This man who attended the church in Corinth was engaged in behavior that shocked the Greeks. And If you know about Greek, much about Greek history, it's kind of hard to shock the Greeks when it comes to morality. But this behavior did it, and this behavior would not have been tolerated in secular Greek society. And yet it's being tolerated in the church in Corinth. The problem was the reputation of the early church across the world was already suspect. Suetonius, who was born shortly after 1 Corinthians was written, was a historian, said, and I'm going to quote him, Christians were, these are early Christians, were a group of people belonging to a new and malevolent fanaticism. The pagans didn't think much of Christians in the first place. And now you got this thing going on in the church that would shock even them. And it's hard to shock them. So that's why Paul is bringing this to the surface. It's a colossal failure on the part of our ambassadorship for Jesus Christ to give the unbeliever any excuse for their unbelief. You know, when they say, listen, I would become a Christian, but you see, those people over there, they're such hypocrites they're always taking each other to the court. They're suing each other. There's as much fornication going on inside that church of Corinth as outside. And you should hear what kind of fornication's going on. And you're telling me that I need Jesus? I've got a more moral life than you do. At least that would be what Paul is trying to guard against. While this was going on inside the church, their public testimony was shot And Paul wants to correct it. They should have been deeply grieved. They should have expelled the person, according to Paul, or the persons, if the stepmother was a member of the church. They should have expelled them from the congregation. There's no indication that they were celebrating the sin or they were proud of the sin, but they're ignoring the sin while at the same time expressing pride over their own spirituality. They wanted to be known as a spiritual church. We've seen that in some of the introductory material. 1 Corinthians so they had a big problem and this man needed to be disciplined and they weren't doing it so Paul said apostolically I'm going to do it for you the purpose of discipline is the ultimate restoration of the individual involved church discipline is primarily corrective not punitive should not be punitive God's discipline when he disciplines us is essentially corrective not punitive. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you, in other words. In our scripture reading this morning, from Jeremiah chapter 29, we observed in this chapter, which is about the Jews while they were in exile, about the time when they would be returned from exile. But we observed that God disciplined His people, the Jews, severely for their lack of faithfulness. I mean, severely. If you read some of the accounts of Nebuchadnezzar's d- destruction of Jerusalem. Severe discipline on his own people. And that discipline was going to last 70 years. So that's why in the scripture reading this morning you saw that they were told to, b- to build houses, plant gardens, take wives for yourselves. And not only that, did you notice for your son or your daughter too, because you're going to be there more than one generation. But, but God's desire was for their ultimate restoration. Restoration. And I hope you saw at the end of that passage that God still had a plan and a purpose for their lives. He was planning even for the time that he would restore them. In the middle of the discipline, God was still planning for their ultimate restoration. That's why I say the discipline of God is primarily corrective, not punitive. He's not just trying to make life miserable for you just to make life miserable. Life may be miserable, but it's to get you back to him. That's the purpose of God's discipline. This is a crucial point to keep in mind when we ourselves fail. It's easy to see it, I think, when we look at the Jews and their failure. It's easy to see it when we look at another human being and their failure, maybe David or Moses. It's easy to see it when we look at the failure of a contemporary, perhaps. It's harder to see it with ourselves. But here's the point. If we're still alive, if you or I are still alive after we've sinned, And after we've confessed and the dust is settled, even though we might have to endure discipline, and it'll be painful or it wouldn't be discipline. Even though we might have to endure discipline, it is for our correction, our good. And watch, God still has a plan and a purpose for you being here. Your life is not over. I think all of us, if we were really, really honest, would have to say that at some point in time in our lives, we've done something that we wonder why God even keeps us alive. We have so disgraced him. We have so sullied our own ambassadorship that we wonder, why even bother with me anymore, Lord? Why bother with me? But yet he does bother with us. And he's got to bother with these people here in Corinth. God still has a plan for our lives, just like he had a plan in Jeremiah chapter 29, For the Jews. And it wasn't for calamity. It wasn't for raw evil. It was for good. Tov. He still has a purpose for us being here. So the application would be. Pick up the pieces. Learn what needs to be learned. And move on in a more positive direction. We all sin. We all fail. All of us sin. All of us fail. And that's not making an excuse for sin in any way. Or I'm not trying to encourage it in any way. It's just a sad reality. And we're going to sin and we're going to fail until God takes us up into heaven. Some people don't think that they fall into the category of sinner, though. Everybody say for everybody else, but the sins I commit are not quite so bad. But it's self-deception to think that. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, Like only he can. Men do not differ so much in what things they will call evil. They differ enormously, though, in what evils they will call excusable. And most of the evils that we call excusable happen to be our own. Not somebody else's, but our own brand. We tend to categorize our own sins as excusable while finding the sins of others to be particularly reprehensible. And God must be looking down with disfavor because he finds all of our sins reprehensible. Picking up the text now in verse 9 for our passage today, Paul says, "...I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people." In our introduction to 1 Corinthians, which was many months ago, we learned at that time that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. We don't have all four. We have letters two and four. We're missing one and three. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to make those canonical. This is one of the places where we know that there was a previous letter. There are others, but this is one of the places that we know that. And in that previous letter, there was apparently an admonition in that letter not to associate with, or this, this word could also be translated, not to mix with, or perhaps fellowship with, the type of person that's referred to in the first verse of this chapter. In fact, the words are almost identical. It's actually reported in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. And then in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral persons. Greek text is almost like a different form, but the same word. Their nonchalant attitude in dealing with the man indicated that they had not taken this warning seriously. So Paul reminds them of the warning and then clarifies it in verse 10. And it's the clarification... That I want to stress this morning. Because I think we all get it. I hope we all get it. That a man sleeping with his stepmother is reprehensible. I hope we get that. But there's some other things that Paul's going to bring up. And he's going to categorize them all together. Because, see with God, sin sin. And it all offends him. He's going to categorize these things all together in one lump. And this is the part that might surprise us when it comes to this text. So hang in there with me. In verse 10, I did not mean, in terms of association, I did not mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or the swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, if I, was gonna, if I told you to not associate with anybody that's sinful in this sense, you wouldn't be associated with anybody. If, if that's the case. So that's not the point. But you see, his concern is not so much to improve the behavior of unbelievers. That's a problem with some evangelism. I hate to say it, but some evangelism is strictly geared toward making people better people while they're still on their way to hell, and that's not good. I'm all for people being people being better. Please don't get me wrong. I said a moment ago that salvation is not joining a church or giving money or praying or listening to a Bible study. Yeah, it's true. Salvation is not that. That's something you do after salvation. It's very legitimate. So I'm all for people improving their behavior. The world would be a better place if we all improved our behavior. But it's not going to get you to heaven. And so that's what Paul's saying basically in verse 10. I'm not saying that you're going to go out there and try to clean up the world. My primary purpose, he's saying, in writing this letter is to help you clean up your church first. Then the church can have a positive influence on the world. Right now you have no positive influence. Then in verse 11, But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Now the plot thickens just a bit. We're not just talking about someone who's having a perverse relationship with his stepmom. Now the plot has significantly thickened. Verse eleven, by the way, is a little bit ambiguous in the Greek text, and that's why some of your translations may differ from what I just read in the New American Standard. But I believe New American Standard is the best rendering of it when it says, "I wrote you," referring to the previous letter, not to a present one. As per, if you're using the NIV this morning, I think NIV is one that uses the letter, indicates the letter he's writing right now, but it probably is still referring to the last one. He's saying, in essence, if anyone was confused about what I wrote you before. Let me be clear now. The so-called brother, I love that term. I looked at a lot of different ways that this was translated. It's interesting how people render this. Professing Christian or so-called brother, one that claims that they're a Christian. The point is this is not about whether they're really saved or not. This is a person who professes to be saved in Jesus Christ. If you're going to hang yourself a shingle out and say, I'm a Christian... If you're going to put the fish on your car, if you're going to have the KCB or the KSBJ sticker back there, then this is for you. That's what he's saying. If you're going to put the fish on your business card or have it up on a billboard, I have a cross on the billboard with the firm that you own, then this is for you. That's what he means by so-called brother. He's not, it's not, a, he's not trying to be smart like you here at all. He's just saying, listen, if you're going to be, categorize yourself as a Christian, then you need to act like one. But look at the categories, immoral, we've seen that, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler. This list is awfully reminiscent of the list in Galatians chapter 5 of the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. It's pretty all-encompassing, wouldn't you say? Especially when we consider the fact that an idolater is anyone who at any time for any length of time puts something in their life in in a place of priority over their relationship with God. And I say that catches all of us a lot. There are boundaries to the personal conduct that is to be accepted by any member of a local church. But at the same time, If you're objective, and I still have your attention this morning, I haven't lost you yet, at the same time, all of us are caught up in this net. Now, we may not be caught up in the first net that was expressed in verses 1 through 8. We can say, okay, I get that. That guy's a bad guy. But now, Paul has expanded the playing field just a little bit with idolatry, with covetousness. Francis Schaeffer made a good case, I think, that all sin passes through the command not to covet. I'm coveting somebody else's wife. I'm coveting somebody else's house. I'm coveting their car. I'm coveting their money. I'm coveting their time. I'm coveting their beauty. Whatever it is that I may be coveting, that leads to pride. And Francis Schaeffer did make a good case, I think, that all sin filters through that commandment not to covet. My point is that if this passage, in the way that it's written right here, was referring to all sin and that was it, there would be no one left in the church. We'd all be expelled. Last person out would have to shut the lights off and lock the door. So there's more to it than that, and I kind of already gave you a clue as to what it was in the beginning. There's more to this. This is not referring to all sin per se, but to unconfessed and unrepented of sin. This refers to someone who sins but refuses to acknowledge that they've sinned or acknowledges that they've sinned and refuses to repent of it. In, in other words, they're out of fellowship, in fellowship, out of fellowship, in fellowship. I had a professor one time, they called that view spiritual schizophrenia. Well, it is spiritual sch- schizophrenia if you don't repent. You see, confession gets me back into the loving fellowship of God, but I've got to turn away from that sin and move away from it. Otherwise, my confession is effectively worthless. So that's why I brought up the difference between those two terms. Actually, three. Faith to get into the relationship. Confession to be restored to fellowship. Repentance to stay there. So the, the immoral person, the covetous, the idolater, the reviler, the drunkard, or the swindler, people that we're not even supposed to have fellowship with, is referring in this context because of what he knows about what we know about the church, this one of the first man, it's referring to, in this context, people who refuse to change, who refuse to repent and say, listen, this is what I'm doing. You're going to accept me or you're not going to accept me, but I'm not changing. I'm not getting rid of that habit of theft on my time card. That's the only way I pay my bills. Yeah, I cheat on my taxes. I'm going to keep cheating on my taxes. The taxes are unfair in the first place. Whatever it may be. Yeah, I know there's church on Sunday morning, but it's the only time I can get a tea time at the golf course. Heard that one before. Now what's the idol there? That new do three would. <laughs> I, I hope you see the point I'm trying to drive home tonight. And this passage includes all of us, or it can include all of us, if we don't confess it and if we don't turn away from it. And the passage is pretty strong, not to even eat with such a one. And I think the reason for that is that it encourages the behavior. It's acting like there's no big deal. Nothing wrong whatsoever. But what about the covetous, the idolater, the reviler? That's a pretty broad category too. The drunkard or the swindler? See, it's, it's not just the sexual sins. Christians usually, hopefully, have a revulsion to certain things. We don't have a revulsion to enough things. Because we always want to exclude ourselves. We always want to think it's for everybody else. And that's where we fail and that grieves the Holy Spirit of God desperately. Open and unrepentant rebellion will harm the church's testimony. That's what must be expelled. So he says in verse 12, he brings up the point again about outsiders. What have I to do with judging the outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. He'll take care of all that. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. This is a reference back to that particular fellow, specifically. But in general, it's an admonition to remove those who are in open and willful rebellion against God and refuse to do anything about it. I'm not saying it's an easy passage, but it should be a scary passage. Because all of us have been in open and, and dishonest rebellion against God at one point in time in our life. Even if it's for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, two hours, a couple of weeks, the longer you go, the worse it is. All of us could quietly, don't do it out loud, but all of us could quietly amen this one. And there should be a little bit of a, a fear factor here. The fear factor being that we spend an extended period of time in unrepentant behavior. Which causes us to lose fellowship with God, causes us to lose fellowship with His church. And believe it or not, fellowship in the church is extremely important to your spiritual life. Some try to have a spiritual life outside of the local church. And it's possible, but it's not probable. Some people have to because they live in places where there just aren't any local churches, some rural area or some parts of the country that are more atheistic than other parts. I know people that minister in Oregon, in Washington. I know people that minister up in the northeast part of the country. You know, it's awfully hard to find a church in some of those parts of the country. I know some of you drive more than 50 miles right now. But up there, it's it's typical to have to drive 50 miles to find a church that will teach the Word of God. But it's important to be connected with a local church. And so that's why being expelled from it is a pretty serious deal. It expels you from that aspect of spiritual life. It's not a small thing. So Paul is saying in summary... I'm not telling you to worry about the people outside the church. I'll take care of them, God says. But you take care of what's going on inside the church. And what he's really telling you in these verses 9 through 13, as you see that guy over there that's in unrepentant, open rebellion against God? Yeah, I see him. I want, I want him out of here. Okay, great. And by the way, the rest of you that are also in an open and unrepentant rebellion against God, different kind of sin, but you're still open and in unrepentant rebellion? You're next. The idea is not to clean the church out. The idea is to clean ourselves out. So that we can walk in fellowship with God. That's where true happiness and true contentment is going to be found. Walking consistently in fellowship with God. This is not to make us unhappy. This is not to take away some pleasure. It's to give us pleasure. I'm all for pleasure. I love pleasure. But there's a false, there's a counterfeit pleasure, and there's a true pleasure. Let me close with this, and I want you to listen carefully because it might surprise you. But a healthy church will be full of sinners. We got a bunch of sinners here today. There's one sitting standing right up here in front of you, too. A healthy church will be full of sinners. But hopefully they'll be repentant sinners who've confessed their sin, who've repented of it, and who humbly recognize that they're still alive by means of the grace, mercy, and compassion of God and are thankful for it.